I think that the message that I am about to preach, honestly, in my thinking, is probably one of the most important messages I've ever given. And so I'm going to ask that you treat it that soberly, that seriously. The text that we're going to be looking at is 1 Peter chapter 3. We're in the Alien Invasion series. We're going to look at unjust suffering. And what I'm going to do through the Word of God and through what Peter taught is prepare you and prepare myself for persecution that I am sure is to come more and more. Christian brother and sister, listen, I believe almost every one of us, in fact, let me just really, really, maybe even guess every one of us, are really not prepared for the persecution that's coming. Now somebody here undoubtedly is going to say, well that's overly dramatic. I don't think it is, and the more that I study the scriptures, the more that I keep one hand in our culture and our world events, it's coming. The waves and the clouds of persecution, what we're calling unjust suffering, they're amassing in the skies in this world, and they are moving. I don't think that's dramatic. I think that's biblical. Now, I want to take you back to A.D. 64 with the Roman Emperor Nero. He was looking to put the Apostle Peter to death, but the Christians begged and pleaded and persuaded Peter to flee the city of Rome and escape the plans of Nero. Nero was looking for him. Now, tradition says that Peter listened to them, and he was on his way to safety. He came to a gate, and he saw there a vision of Jesus Christ coming into the gate, coming through the gate, and Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? To which he heard Jesus say, I am on my way again to be crucified. Peter understood the message in that vision. He returned to the city and he submitted courageously to what would come. Robert Murray McShane once said these words, There is a great want, meaning something lacking, about all Christians who have not suffered. Some flowers must be broken or bruised before they emit any fragrance. Now, I want you to get that imagery in your mind. There are some flowers that need to be broken and bruised before they emit any fragrance. That was true, by the way, of a tree that I have not yet identified that somebody gave me for firewood, and every time I split it, it smelled powerfully like perfume. You didn't smell it until you split it open. That's what suffering does. And that's what suffering can do for a lot of Christians. That when they suffer, 
there is a sweetness that comes out of their life. Now there are some, there are many that when they suffer, there is anger, there is resentment, there is hostility and bitterness that comes out of their lives. But there's many that I have personally witnessed and seen. One lady, as she's dying, I was with her just hours before she died. She's laying on her couch. There's about eight to nine of us from the church around her. We are singing. She was too weak to sing. We're singing her favorite songs. She has her arms lifted to heaven and just hours later died. There was a sweetness about her death. And the suffering that Christians are going to face in this life, listen, it's multifaceted. And I can give you that from the Word of God, 2 Corinthians. Now listen to the multifaceted nature of suffering. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, meaning we have no way out, but not driven to despair. We, per we are persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Four different forms of suffering, and it all hurts. We live in a world marred by sin and brokenness. And listen, Christian brother and sister, suffering is common to every one of us. Yet the suffering in the mind of Peter that's going to weave its way through this message is the type of suffering that we call persecution, unjust suffering. And it comes to a Christian when they live as a spiritual light in a morally darkening world. Now listen, you're not going to suffer for what you believe, Christian brother and sister. Listen, you're not going to suffer for what you believe. You're going to suffer for what you speak. If you don't speak it, you're likely not going to suffer persecution. But if you speak it, if you declare, if you make a stand in this dark world, you're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. Now, I want you to remember two weeks ago, we started this series in the memory verse. We're asking everybody to memorize these two verses, and it goes like this from chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, we use that phrase, the NASB, the aliens and strangers. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The unbelieving world will speak against us as evildoers. And when they do, how we respond, how we love, how we suffer, how we speak, how we find our joy, how we find our rest, that's going to speak volumes. And when it's coupled with the fearless and bold and courageous declaration of what we believe, it's got the power to bring people to Christ. How do we do that? I don't know if you know A.W. Tozer. He's one of my favorite communicators of the gospel. He said this, To be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with man. And there are people in our church, by the way, who have been rejected by their family. Now listen, they've been rejected by their family, parents and siblings. 
because they left their family's religion or left their family's denomination and are attending a Protestant evangelical church. We've got people in our church that have experienced this. We have some who have lost friends or boyfriends because they began to live after Jesus according to the word of God and they would not any longer do what their boyfriend or girlfriend wanted to do, so they lost them. We have some here who are taking a risk. I got an email two days ago from somebody who works at one of the biggest companies in America, and he is starting a Bible study or wants to start a Bible study and positioned and emailed a letter to his boss and is waiting a response. Can I start this Bible study for people that work in this company? And he's waiting for that response. Listen, we've got people who have been in trouble in their places of employment because they've done that. In Peter's day, the Apostle Peter, this is written in A.D., around A.D. 64. And in his day, persecution was beginning to escalate. Now listen, you've got to, you've got to understand this if you want to understand the epistle or the letter to Peter. Persecution is not yet fully coming against the early church. Watch. It is beginning to escalate. The clouds are amassing. And listen, it's going to break out. And it's going to unleash on the church in a way that none of us have ever seen. What we hear about in the Middle Eastern countries, but we've never experienced. That's coming almost right after he wrote this letter. And he's writing this. To prepare his people. You get to see this. Now listen, you got to have your Bibles with you. Tonight and today, this is going to be extremely critical. You have your Bibles open. And I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. I think it will communicate well if you've got another translation. But if you've got your Bibles open, look at 1 Peter 1.6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So persecution and suffering is ramping up. 1 Peter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Suffering is coming. Chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Look at verse 16 and 19. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Look at chapter 5, verse 9, speaking to the elders of the church. Resist Satan firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So listen, this is a way you study the Bible. When you see a theme over and over and over, well, you're capturing the heartbeat of the writer. You're capturing the intent of God who is inspiring Peter to write this. Suffering is coming. It is increasing. It is escalating. He's going to prepare the church to suffer persecution. So it's around A.D. 64, 
Peter is writing to Christians all over Rome. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. You'll see that. And then all of a sudden, July 19th, and for eight days this occurred, a fire broke out. You probably have heard about it. A massive fire raging in the city of Rome. It's devouring the tightly bunched wooden tenements. It destroyed 10 of the city's 14 quarters. So all of this portion of the city of Rome is destroyed by this fire. Now watch and listen. Nero wanted to remake Rome. And he wanted to bypass the Senate to do it. So many historians, and I'm going to say most historians, believe that Nero started this fire or had this fire started in his bid to remake the city the way that he wanted. So accounts tell us that he watched the fires burning from his tower with maniacal glee. As Roman troops prevented people from extinguishing the fires, even starting new ones, guaranteeing the devastation. But one of the quarters that did not get touched was where thousands of Gentile Christians were living. And they were already resented by the public. The Roman populace hated and despised the Christians. And Nero, with a rumor that he had started the fire, began to divert the blame toward the Christian community, which was already viewed with hatred. So Christians already were, had already been accused of eating flesh like cannibals at their Lord's Supper, believing that the bread and the wine were markers for the flesh and the blood of Christ that was misconstrued believing they were cannibals. The holy kiss, which was a greeting of the early church, was, they believed, a gesture of rampant lust. It was common that Roman women, chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, came to Christ and their husbands didn't, verse 1, so Christians were accused of dividing the family. So they were already viewed with hostility. It really didn't take much for Nero to tell the people, hey, look, the Christians, their quarter didn't even get touched by the fire. They were the ones that started it. And all of the hatred of Rome began to swing towards the Christians. Nero rounded up Christians, and I want you to hear this. He rounded them up, he put them on poles, and he burned them at night when the sun went down to light his garden parties. He had Christians sewn alive inside animal skins, and then wild beasts set upon them for the entertainment of the people and devoured them. He had them crucified. He had them killed in the most unjust ways. Now, now listen, it's against that backdrop that Peter begins to write because he knew what was coming. How do you prepare the church for unjust suffering? Let me give you three ways that Peter does that. But before we, be, we even look at this, can you look at me for just a moment? I'm going to tell you again. I want to reiterate it. I think this is probably one of the most important sermons I've ever preached. I really truly believe the persecution is coming. I don't think we're ready. I'm included in the we. I am deadly serious that we have got to listen to what we're going to hear tonight and this morning. Whenever you're going to hear this message, you have got to hear this. And you've got to do something with it. 
you've got to take action with it. Let me give you the first point. Knowing who we are as Christians gives us a powerful anchor in the midst of unjust suffering. Now, don't gloss over that because there's a lot of words. Knowing who you are, we're talking about Christian identity. How do you answer the question, who am I, will tell you what your personal identity is. How you answer the question, who are we as a church, will tell you what the church's identity is. So knowing who you are, church, knowing who we are, will provide an anchor in unjust suffering. Now look at verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 3. I hope you have your Bibles open. If I can encourage you to start marking up your Bible, mark it up. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. Look at that powerful admonition. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That's unjust suffering, persecution. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. This is verse 12. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Knowing who you are as a church, provide an anchor when persecution comes. Look at how verse 8 begins. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is so incredibly important. We're talking about redemptive community. You know what wearies a pastor's heart? There are a lot of things. Some of y'all think that we work one day a week, and that's a half a day. I don't pray much for you. That's not true. But what wearies a pastor's heart is people who live on the periphery of community. You know, they're here once a month. They're here maybe regularly, but they don't get involved. They don't have relationships in the church. They don't understand that, listen, they're here to love people and to serve people, be loved by people, to draw strength from one another, to fellowship with one another. That's peripheral living. They stay out on the edges, out on the fringes. And listen, I get it because there's a lot of times that Christians get hurt in church. I understand. I don't really think, now I'm going to go out on a limb here, I'm pretty sure Probably not anybody's been hurt as much as a pastor gets hurt. So I really get this. And I'm going to go out a little further on that limb. I'm going to be very honest with you. You want to experience the most hurt you can experience as a pastor, get into the lead pastorate. Because everything gets to the top. Right? They're responsible for it all. So I get a letter this last week for a family that I've invested in, a family that I love, that have left the church. A very genial, congenial, very nice letter, but we don't really agree with the elders, we don't agree with the leadership, but they never come and talk to me. I even tried to get to talk to them, and they wouldn't come and talk to me, say, ah, no problems, we don't need to talk. Well, I'm thinking it's pretty good. Next thing I know, they're leaving the church. That's peripheral living. I get leaving a church. It happens. It ought to happen when there is heresy. It ought not to happen when there's not. There's got to be something called covenantal community where you recognize your responsibility. Just like any other family, you're in it for the long haul. Amen? 
But if you stay on the periphery, you're going to get picked off. I've been doing this for 22 years. I have watched one peripheral person after another that will not come into community, will not come into the pulse of a church. They stay on the outside, and they either get disgruntled and bitter and resentful and slanderous, and eventually that's a portent of worse to come, and they leave the church angry. You can't do that. There is a responsibility called covenantal community that goes both ways. You come into a church and you love and you serve and you use your gifts for the glory of God. So you get to see this in verse 8. All of you, not individually, all of you, plural community pronoun, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These are vital they are indispensable ingredients for Christian community. Listen, if you want to endure the persecution that I'm telling you is coming, you won't survive on the periphery. You're not going to make it. Nobody did in the early church. Nobody did in the epistles of the New Testament. You're going to be picked off. If you want to endure all the more until the day approaches, then let us encourage one another. Let us get together with one another. Let's pick each other up when our faith is failing. That's redemptive community. So when it comes to the identity of the church, who are we? We answer that question biblically. We're the righteous, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. We're the people who are to love one another. We're the people that have unity in mind, not the exact same thinking, but unity in mind that says we're going to hold on. We're going to endure till the end. We're going to lift up Jesus Christ. We're going to be faithful to him. We're going to bring glory to God. We're going to obey the word of God, and we're going to do it together. Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up another to love, one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. They were peripheral, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Yet, as you continue through this passage, you get to some powerful teaching. You get to a quotation in verse 10. A quotation of King David from Psalm 34 and, and, and Peter quotes from the Old Testament all through this letter. This is a portion of Psalm 34 that Peter is quoting. It's written by David to express his thanksgiving that God protects and cares for the righteous. Now, I don't know if you remember Psalm 34, but do you remember when David made it into an enemy land and pretended that he was insane so that the king of that enemy land land would not kill him because Saul, the king of Israel, was pursuing him to kill him. So this is what David did. This is when he wrote Psalm 34. 
And God preserves him. The king of the enemy of Israel did not kill David. God preserved him through that experience. God preserved David's life, even though King Saul was trying to kill him. And now we're back to persecution. Now we're back to the ramping up of escalated unjust suffering from the hand of Nero. And Peter is drawing on Psalm 34, telling the church, stay together. Trust God. God's eyes are on the righteous. God knows what you're experiencing. You're not in this alone. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who are the righteous? Listen, let me really, really clear something up. It takes a long time sometimes, a lot of this teaching, to penetrate the cloud of upbringing. When you've been taught that your works make you righteous, when you've been taught that your pedigree, your family background makes you righteous, or been taught that you were baptized as a baby and it transfused righteous grace into you, and that you've been taking the sacraments of Holy Communion all your life, and so all that grace is suffused into your life. So yeah, you're righteous because of all these things that you did or your family did or that happened to you in church, that none of that can make you righteous. None of it. Listen, a person is made righteous, not makes themselves righteous. A righteous person is someone whom Christ has made righteous, who died on their behalf and took their sins and transferred his righteousness upon them so they are justified, they are declared right to the heavenly Father because of the blood of Christ. A righteous person is one who is trusted in Jesus Christ by faith alone, grace alone, and now God has made them righteous in his son. And the father's eyes are on the righteous. Now that you've got to get this by extension, you've got to get this by countering or flipping the coin. God's preserving, caring, gracious eyes are not on the unrighteous. So Christian, who are we as the church? You are someone whom the Father looks upon, gazes upon, his eyes stay upon for a reason. Why? To find out and watch when you slip up? So that he can hit the cosmic smite button and punish you? That's not why his eyes are on you. His eyes are on you to watch over you, to love you, to be good to you, to yes, sometimes discipline us, but that discipline is so that we could be walking in our righteousness. So there is a love of God that dispels the fear that, oh my goodness, God is watching me, and I'm going to slip up today and something bad's going to happen to me. Well, you don't know, 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Now, wait a minute, stop. Because I know people that take that verse to say, well, God is nothing but gracious. I can do anything I want. I can live in sin. Yeah, I feel a little bit bad about it, but that's okay. God is a gracious God. His mercies are new every morning. There is no fear in love. Listen, you better fear. You better fear in the kind of fear that says, my heavenly Father won't put up with my childish disobedience. 
and he will discipline because he loves me. Parents, think about that for a moment. You would have been the most and would be the most unloving parents if you would never discipline your children, if you would never teach them right from wrong, if you would never give them consequences to their behavior. You would be, of all people, unloving. So God's discipline is his love for us. It's his love for the righteous so that we can walk in that righteousness. So Peter, Peter is saying that the eyes of the Lord are upon us. It shouldn't invoke fear in you Christian brother and sister. It should bring comfort to you. It is an anchor to know that your heavenly father looks upon every detail of your life with love completely, wonderfully, watching over you and everything that you experience do you know that when you cry christian brother and sister when you weep when you suffer and the tears flow when you are depressed and when you are despaired you are perplexed and the tears flow and your heart does not even know how to pray that the spirit of god prays for you he intercedes for you that the son of god jesus intercedes for you that he collects your tears the bible says in a bottle he writes them on a scroll he's going to walk through that with you one day he might even hold that bottle up in eternity as he wipes those tears away and says listen Listen, I was right there. I knew everything that was happening. My grace was flowing to you. I endured you through it, and you don't even know all of what I was doing. But let me tell you about it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Now listen. Look at the other end of that. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Christian brother and sister, you look at me for a moment, you're going to go through persecution. I think it's ramping up. You'll go through it if you speak about the gospel. If you do more than just believe, and you can do all your good works, and the world's probably going to say, wow, thank you, that's really impressive, that's really kind of you, but open your mouth and declare the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him, you will be persecuted. And when you are persecuted, your Father is watching it, his face is against your persecutor, he is for you he will comfort you he will endure you it will give you the boldness and the anchor to endure unjust suffering but there's another part of this peter's going to move us on listen you've got to have an identity you got to know who you are as a church and when you know who you are as a church, it's going to create a mindset, a perspective. That's what identity does. When I understand who I am, and it was 2006 that God really clearly told me, Tim, I didn't make you to be really good at a lot of things. That's truly what I heard. I've always been average in almost everything in my life, almost everything. Where I'm not average, I'm below average. That's the truth. And God clearly told me, 2006, it was March. I'm on my knees, I'm praying. I'm perplexed because I didn't know what God was doing. I was at the end of my rope. I thought burning out, God was moving me into a different season of ministry. And he said to me, here's what I created you to do. Here's why I put you on this planet. As clear as if God was sitting on that couch 
in front of which I was kneeling. He said, I created you to take my word and get it to the hearts of people and walk them into transformation. That's what I made you to do. And the moment that I understood that, there went like moths scattering all the doubts, all the perplexing despair, burnout that I was experiencing. All of a sudden, I am revitalized with a laser-like focus because I know now who I am. I know what my identity is. I know what my purpose is. And it created a brand new perspective of living. That's what identity does. It creates perspective to give you Power. So look at point number two. Knowing who we are, that's identity. As Christians, gives us a powerful perspective in unjust suffering. Now let me ask you, Christian brother and sister, the same question I've been asking myself increasingly in recent years. What would you be willing to lose for the sake of Jesus Christ? Can you grapple with that seriously for a moment? Try to answer that. It's a little, I know it's hard to really deliberate mentally in the middle of a sermon. I get it, but try to do that. What would you be willing to lose for the sake of Christ? And while you're trying to answer that, let me give you a follow-up question that can maybe offer a little more precision in your thinking. You ready? This is a massive question. The implications are huge. Christian, what truly can you lose? What can you really lose? They can take your house. Because of your faith in Christ, they did it to the Christians in the book of Hebrews. But they weren't your homes anyways. They were God's. He owned it. He just let you live in it. And your true home is in eternity. So let him take the homes. What can that really do to you? Well, our friends can reject us if we really live for Christ. It's all right. Listen, what can you really lose? You're called a friend of Jesus. And you've got friends in the church. You've got a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 12, that have already run this road of unjust suffering before you, and they're up in the stands, and they're cheering you on, and they're telling you, don't give in. They really can't take anything from you because they tried it with us, and they weren't successful. All right, well, they could put you in prison. So what? You've been made free in Christ. You remain free wherever you go. You've got a whole mission field inside that prison. What can they really take from us? Well, they can kill us for our faith. Well, to live is Christ, to, to die is gain. So really, what can you lose as a Christian? I really want you to grapple with that. What can they really take from you for your faith? There's nothing. This is how secure we are in Christ. This is what an anchor it is to know that you're the righteous and the eyes of the Father are upon you. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. 
And it provides a fearlessness, a courage that can dwell in the inner person of your life knowing that you really can't lose anything, everything. Now listen, what can you lose? Let me offer a different answer to that for the Christian who really isn't walking with Jesus. You ready? What can you lose for the sake of Christ? Listen, everything if what you're living for is here on earth. Nothing if you're living for eternity. The mindset of the Christian, chapter 3, verse 13, look at it with me. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? I mean, what truly can those who want to harm the Christian do? For we have a promise from God. I want you to hear Charles Simeon. He was an English preacher in the 18th century. He said this, ready? You gotta, you gotta hear this. If I were you, write quickly before this disappears off that screen. Fear not, nothing can touch you that does not first pass through the hands of your heavenly Father. Though the arrow be shot by the evil one, it cannot touch you unless God should will it so. And then you get back to Peter in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Be not troubled. Paul said it similarly. If God is for us, who can be against us? Christian, we will have enemies. We will have opposition. They can hurt us physically, but they cannot ultimately, finally triumph over us they cannot harm us eternally and God will vindicate us when he judges all the earth the one who overcomes listen that's us when you go through persecution you go through unjust suffering and you don't cave you don't waffle you don't give in but you overcome you're zealous Peter says zealous for what is good you're going to be blessed for eternity the one who persecutes will not the one, who, the one who persecutes and won't repent, they're going to be overcome for eternity. They're going to be punished for eternity. All right, so listen to this, because I'm going to kind of tie that together. If God allows persecution to come to you, Christian, if he allows you to lose your job, your family, your health, your life, your secular freedom, listen, look at what he says. You will be blessed it's a promise it's what peter was taught by jesus jesus said blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great you know what jesus is saying listen christian if you endure unjust suffering and you endure to the end and you overcome it knowing who you are in christ that you are the righteous made righteous by Jesus, washed over by the Heavenly Father, and it creates a perspective of boldness and courage in you, and there is nothing that they can take away from you. You're planted in eternity. You will be blessed now, and your reward in heaven will be great. Your blessings are to come. But there's one more point, and this one is critical. They're all three critical, but this one now puts the rubber onto the road and get you moving point number three knowing who we are as christians gives us a powerful preparation for unjust suffering 
Now let me imagine what would happen if all of a sudden you leveraged Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and all the other forms of instant media or social media that you've got at your disposal, if you leverage that for your witness to the world of your faith in Jesus Christ, what would happen in your social circles? Well, I can probably predict some of what's going to happen. A, you're going to get a lot of debating and a lot of arguing, which will coalesce and eventually move into rejection. You will be unfriended in some cases. And there will be a rumor mill, and there will be the slander that goes around, and they're going to talk about you being a holy roller, they're going to talk about you being out of, uh, out of touch with reality, you with your faith, and all of a sudden you're going to be experiencing little drips and drabs of what the early church began to experience in force. So knowing who we are as Christians gives us a powerful preparation for unjust suffering. Listen, when you understand we are the righteous of God, that his eyes are watching over us, it produces a courageous mindset that is convinced that our suffering on this earth will be met with his blessing. And the result, here it is, you ready? Here's the result. Here's where the rubber meets the road. The result is a peaceful, confident, gentle life. If you're under 40 years old and you're listening to this, it might not seem like there's been significant change in our culture. Let me take you through a little bit of a sampling of some persecution that's ramping up. Recently, two middle school sisters had their Bibles confiscated at school in America thrown into the trash, their Bibles were thrown into the trash, and a phone call was placed to their mother threatening to turn the girls over to child protection services. That happened in America recently. A Sonoma State University student teacher gone into the public classroom to teach, student teaching, had to remove her cooperating teacher, supervising teacher, made her remove a two-inch cross necklace because the cooperating teacher believed it would offend the students in the classroom. An army email recently released labeling pro-family Christian ministries as, quote, domestic hate groups alongside the Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazis. That was an army email recently went out. Pastor Louis Giglio was ousted from the 2012 presidential inauguration program because in 1990s he preached a sermon calling the willful practice of homosexuality sin. So they removed him from the inauguration ceremony. Two years ago, Nazareth, Pennsylvania, Schaefer School barred an elementary student from handing out Valentine's Day cards that was about the faith of St. Valentine. It communicated God's love and it had a Bible verse. That student was banned from handing them out. A lawsuit erupted. The, students, the student won. Listen, persecute. I could go on and on. There are literally hundreds and if not thousands of examples in America of where persecution against Christians is occurring. 
It's escalating. And it was doing the very same when first Peter was written. Look at verse 15. So Peter wrote to the church, Honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. You know what that means? It means to be so thoroughly convinced that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of everything, including you, that it galvanizes the way you live. So honor Christ the Lord as holy in your heart. Set him apart as Lord. There is no other Lord. He is the Lord of everything, including me, but the sovereign, good, perfect king of the universe. Be thoroughly convinced of it. And when we recognize and believe that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of everything, there is a great peace that comes into you. Listen, there's not been one thing in, the, in doctrine and theology that has brought me greater joy than the sovereignty of God. Nothing. It was not until 1998 that I really truly began to know that God is absolutely perfectly sovereign. And when I began to understand that, it totally began to change the way that I preach, teach, live, experience difficulty and hardship. God is over everything. Honor Christ the Lord, the sovereign king of kings, as holy in your hearts. He is absolutely, perfectly sovereign over every part of creation. Now look at me. You've got somebody coming to you with suffering, with persecution, in mind against you. They're speaking evil of you. They're speaking of you as evildoers because of your Christian faith. Listen, God is sovereign. God is perfectly in control. God is blessing you even while you're experiencing it because you are holding fast to him. You overcome the evil in this world. You do it through the power of God's word, the indwelling spirit of God. You know that the Father who is righteous is watching over you because he has made you righteous in Christ and he loves you and is taking care of you. And it's a powerful witness, verse 15, when the church is always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Meaning that we all need to learn how to present and explain the gospel, the hope that is in us. As we explain the good news of Jesus Christ, look how we do it in verse 15 through 17. Look how you've got to do it with gentleness and respect. Listen, if you don't have gentleness and respect, and I can struggle with this, you got to get it in there. Because listen, the gospel doesn't look so good when it's coming from the lips of an angry person. An argumentative person. A debate-prone person. Listen, I've never debated anybody into faith. I've never been able to argue anybody into faith. It's got to be the birth of a spiritual seed by the Spirit of God. Just gently, lovingly, respectfully prepare a defense. Explain the gospel. Look what it says. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Well, look back at verse 10. You're going to see how you do this. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let him be a peace giver and a peacemaker. 
Christian, I'm almost done. You've got to hear this. Who are we? Is answered by the word righteous. We have been made righteous and the world will increasingly hate us. Let that hatred and rejection not be because we live no different than the world, but let it be because we've given our lives to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jerome, he was an early church father. He said that Peter... When he was going out that gate to flee the wrath of Nero, fleeing the city of Rome, had that vision of Jesus Christ, understood it, turned back around and said, God, you're sovereign. I've been made righteous. Your eyes are on me. It's producing in me courageous conviction, boldness. And it's putting in not only that anchor in me, that perseverance in me, but now I can speak and prepare a defense for the gospel. He walked back into Rome. Nero caught him. It wasn't too long after that that Peter was led to the site of his crucifixion. But tradition says that he requested to be crucified upside down. Unworthy to die in the same form and manner of Jesus. Peter, Peter got it. Peter understood suffering. Not only in his martyrdom, he understood it in his life, but he knew who he was. That power gave him courage, and that courage gave him the ability to defend the gospel peaceably. All the way to giving his life. What can the world take from you, Christian? Nothing. And though it tries, God will bless you. He will give you strength to endure it. And you will have a reward in heaven. Overcome unjust suffering. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this was not 